Hello everyone, my name is Arti and this is the Mahabharata. Episode 32 Vishwamitra Vivasisht In our last episode, our heroes were dashing through the woods with heart-shaped stars in their eyes. None but Bhima had even exchanged glances with a woman, and the description they've heard of Princess Draupadi is tantalizing, the more so for Vyasa's disclosure that she's to be their wife. Now they're in a mad rush to get to her rose ceremony. On the way, however, they're accosted by the Gandharva Chitraratha, a brash, show-offy youth intent upon a show of manliness before his wives. Arjuna's fire missile, however, destroys his car and reduces his pride to ashes. After a hasty recalibration, Chitraratha wisely concludes that the Pandavas are better as friends, and he showers them with gifts. As they sit for dinner, he regales them with stories of their ancestry. The first story is of their grandmother times ex, Tapti, spunky daughter of the sun god. Her romance with the derelict king Samvarana yields their eponymous ancestor, Kuru. Surprisingly for a character whose name figures so prominently in every branch of the family tree, we learn very little about Kuru. I mean, our story set in the land of the Kurus, all our characters belong to the Kuru dynasty, most will die at Kurukshetra, the field of the Kurus, but who's Kuru? We hardly know. What we do know is that his father had a famous priest named Vasishta, and our text now takes a detour into the story of Vasishta. Why do we care about Vasishta? Well, a few reasons. First, the legendary sage has a surprising connection to the Pandavas. Second, he's a stock character in many Hindu texts whose career spans the length and breadth of Hindu tradition, from the Rigveda to many a modern temple. But most importantly, he represents something. In our text, he's on the one hand a foil to Kshatriya violence, predominantly in the form of King Vishwamitra, for whom he's the animal-sheltering, meditation-practicing arch-nemesis. But he's also a foil to an oppositional type of Brahmin who takes up arms. Vasishta is the archetype of the pacifist, non-violent Brahmin who would rather hurt himself than hurt another. We saw this last time. He wouldn't raise a hand even to defend against the assault of his favorite cow or the violent abduction of all her calves. In fact, so absolute is his commitment to non-injury that when his cow Nandini is forced to defend herself, instrumentalizing the armies of Alexander, the Scythians, the Persians and assorted Malachas, those murderous hordes kill no one. They're deployed simply to shoo away the aggressing army, which, completely spooked by the unorthodox approach to warfare, scatters helter-skelter. This is a stoic, forbearing, forgiving brand of Brahmin, a type our text approves. But there are also violent Brahmins, and we're about to meet some today.
So the great Rishi Vasishta's unassuming strength attracts the animus of King Vishwamitra, whom we saw last time is a very bad guest. He wants Vasishta's cow. Vasishta refuses to part with her. Vishwamitra tries to take her by force, but to his bewilderment finds he cannot. He rains down every manner of Kshatriya fury. But when all the king's horses and all of his men cannot displace one petite cow, he realizes the limits of Kshatriya power and develops the sneaking suspicion that the Daudaging might be right. Maybe the soft does overcome the hard. Maybe the weak does overcome the strong. But that wisdom is going to take some time. Right now, humiliated and perplexed by Vasishta's bovine-assisted triumph, Vishwamitra is out for revenge. All but abandoning his regal responsibilities, he lurks in the bushes around Vasishta's ashram, waiting for an opportunity. It soon comes in the form of the eldest of Vasishta's 100 sons, a youth named Shakti. He's out berry-picking in the woods, whistling a merry tune, when on his way home he runs into a neighbouring king with the less-than-mellifluous name Kalmashpad. Let's call him KLM for short. He's out doing you'll never guess what. Okay, fine, he's out terrifying animals, but just to shake it up, this time he's hunting boar. He's charging along with urgency when along a narrow trail he encounters Vasishta's son, Shakti. Move, he commands, and in the royal we, this road is ours. But Vasishta's son is of a less obliging temperament than his father, and he dithers irritatingly. Now let's keep calm. Nothing to get excited about. What's the rush? Give way, yells KLM. But Shakti stubbornly doesn't budge. Just take a deep breath. No need to get upset. We can talk about this. Violence is never the answer. The Vedas say... Enraged at the Brahmin's chutzpah, KLM whips Shakti. Stung by the whiplash, Shakti's tranquility dissipates in a moment. How dare you? You can't strike a Brahmin. Because you've behaved like a brutish Rakshasa, assailing ascetics, you're going to become a degenerate cannibal yourself. I curse you. You're going to roam the earth as a man-eater, craving meat like you've never craved before. His sanity now in imminent peril, the king is struck with remorse. He's about to throw himself at Shakti's mercy, begging forgiveness, when Vishwamitra, concealed in the thickets, spies his opportunity. Swiftly, with his occult powers, he summons the Rakshasa Kinkara to take possession of the king. And with his next breath, KLM sucks the Rakshasa into his body like a genie. Satisfied, Vishwamitra leaves, filled with glee. Now, as we noted last time, the eldest of Vasishta's sons may be as fine an example as any of natural selection at work. I mean, in the heat of an argument, would you hand your opponent a gun? Still, for some time, KLM wrestles with his inner demon. Notwithstanding the temptation when his wife looks at him fondly or his friends drop by for drinks, he resists. 
but fate is inexorable, and one day it finds him. Passing through Times Square on a summer evening, he meets a panhandling Brahmin at one corner of West 45th. I'm hungry, man. Just want a big chunk of meat, you know? It's been ages. KLM is king, so he's duty-bound to support Brahmins. Nothing to it, my man. I'm headed home. Wait right here, and I'm going to send you something delicious, okay? The panhandler waits. But traffic is crazy, and by the time KLM arrives home, he's forgotten all about it. But in the middle of the night, he leaps up suddenly, remembering the panhandler waiting for food. Rushing down in his pyjamas, he wakes the cook. Steak, quarter pounder, or even, you know, veal parmigiana or spaghetti bolognese. Something sumptuous for the poor dude, right? But the cook hasn't been grocery shopping. But there's no beef, no pork, no chicken, no goat, just a few carrots. I don't care, snaps King KLM. Give him barbecue human for all I care. I just promised him meat. And he returns to bed. The cook is suddenly wide awake. Now you might raise an eyebrow as to why the king's cook has a freezer stocked with human body parts. But I'm sure there's an innocent explanation. A cook is a bit of an artist, you see, and has been looking for an edge for a stint on the Iron Chef. This is his chance to try a twist on Hyderabadi biryani. He cooks it lovingly, steeping the rice in rich stock for a real delicacy of flavour, folding in saffron and ginger, cinnamon bark and cardamom before garnishing the masterpiece with cashews and fried onions. Then, carefully assembling the dish with a salad and a side of cucumber raita, he dispatches Uber Eats to the location given him by the king. It's 4 a.m. The panhandler still standing patiently, waiting for his dinner. The aroma is delightful, but when he pulls out the linen serviette and sits down to eat, his Brahmin radar goes off like a siren. Hey, he yells at the driver, that's not kosher. How dare you serve me forbidden food? But the driver's already pulling away. Take it up with the king, man. Don't shoot the messenger. So incensed is the Brahmin that he curses the king in absentia, as it turns out redundantly. Because you served me this ghoulish food, you too shall be like a ghoul, feeding on human flesh, irresistibly craving human meat. Poor KLM. He had tried valiantly to battle the demonic urges within him. But now, with the curse affirmed, confirmed, and reinscribed, he goes nuts. He doesn't dare nibble on his wife's ear anymore. He refuses to kiss his mother. When the maid comes to serve his dinner, he can hardly resist licking her arm. It's that Shakti's fault, he determines. That imbecile. He's going to pay. He returns to the original scene of the crime and confronts Shakti. You put this hideous curse upon me, he tells him grimly. Now you're going to be my first meal. After a brief chase around the kitchen table, our text tells us he separated Shakti from his life.
Vasishta's firstborn is now dead, victim of his own imprudently chosen curse. But when Vishwamitra learns of it, he's delighted. He visits KLM and eggs him on to Vasishta's other sons as well. Number three should be particularly tasty. He's fed on an all-organic diet. Vasishtha's ashram soon becomes a hunting ground for KLM. Every day he comes for lunch, and soon all hundred of Vasishtha's sons are extinct. When Vasishtha learns that Vishwamitra had contrived the death of his sons, the great sage held his grief as the mountain holds the earth. But rather than plotting revenge, he resolves to die. Broken with grief, he climbs to the peak of Mount Miru and jumps. But when his head hits the rocks below, it's like falling on a bed of cotton. Instead of shattering into bits, it's cushioned as if by a pillow. So he lights a fire and waits until the blaze is tree high. Then he enters into it. But the flames refuse to burn him and are cool like a numbing balm upon his skin. He heads to the river with a length of rope. Strapping himself with a humongous rock, he drops into the river. The current is strong and carries him a long way, but he remains unhurt and drifts back to the bank. I can't even die, he cries. The silence at home is painful and lonely, so he goes travelling, walking everywhere through the Himalayas. One day, as he's walking, he hears the sound of melodious Vedic chanting behind him. But when he whips around, there's nobody there. He proceeds again and again the same sound. Who's there? he calls. Who's following me? It's me, father, says a woman's voice. I'm Adrishanti. But he can't see his daughter-in-law, possibly because her name means invisible. Where are you? And what's that sound of chanting? That's Shakti's son, she tells him. I'm pregnant, you see. So he's getting a head start on his learning, practicing his chanting in utero. You're pregnant? The sister's filled with joy. So there will be children. With a glad heart, he takes his daughter-in-law home. When they arrive at his neglected ashram, however, King KLM is loitering about outside. That's the Rakshasa, father. That's the one who ate all your sons. Vasishta sizes up KLM. That's not a Rakshasa. That's a king. Hard to tell the difference sometimes, I know. He releases the king from his curse. Go. Be happy. It had been 12 long years, and the king's relief is palpable. How can I ever repay you? But Vasishta wants nothing. Just rule your kingdom, okay? And don't be a jerk. The king promises and returns to his city of Ayodhya. One day he'll return to Vasishta for a favor. But for now, he's just relieved to have his life back. Okay, so that's one kind of Brahmin. What's another? asks Yudhishthira, who's always curious about such things. The night is getting on, but there's still swilling whiskey. 
Well, Vasishta's grandson, for one, reveals Chitraratha. You know you have a personal connection with him, don't you? And he recounts the story of Vasishta's grandson, Parashar. Now, you're forgiven if you don't remember the name. It was a long time ago since we were crossing the Yamuna with a pretty fisher girl. The mist was dense, the air musty, but when she arrived at the far bank, the young Satyavati was sporting a child and the heavenly scent of Chloe. That boon-wielding Brahmin is your great-great-grandfather, Parashar, discloses Chitraratha. But when he was little, he'd follow Vasishta about, calling him Daddy. One day his mother corrected him in tears. That's not Daddy, sweetheart. That's your grandfather. Your dad is dead, eaten by a horrible Rakshasa. What might you do if you learned your dad had been eaten by a monster? If you're a character in the Mahabharata, you might resolve to destroy the world, which is exactly what Parashar decides to do. Kind of overreacting, don't you think, darling? Vasishta tries to dissuade him. The punishment should be commensurate with the crime. And he tells him the story of King Kartavirya. Once upon a time, there was a king named Krithavirya, a particularly generous patron of Brahmins descended from Bhrigu. He shod them with expensive gifts, jewels, gold, land grounds. Then he died. When his sons checked the treasury accounts, they were not happy. So all the Bhargava Brahmins got scary-looking tax notices, demanding repayment of gifts conferred by the crown. Some returned their wealth voluntarily. Others had already spent it. Yet others, however, decided to bury their treasure in the earth. Bad mistake. The new king sent his armies, along with a convoy of caterpillars. As the industrial machines dug out mountains of treasure, the armies slaughtered the Brahmins, down to unborn infants still in their mother's wombs. The slaughter was like a scene from the end times. A few women escaped to the mountains, and one in particular was resourceful. She had cleverly rigged it so her child was growing in her thigh instead of her womb. Don't ask. When they came for her, the child split open her thigh, and so dazzling was he that his effulgence blinded the armies. The Kshatriyas plead with him to restore their sight, but when they revert to bad behaviour, he follows the time-honoured principle of proportionality with genocide. In our next episode, let's see how that goes. The Pandavas will continue their journey, which will bring them to the gates of Drupad's kingdom just in time for Draupadi's Vayamvara. There we'll meet many new characters, among whom will be one observer named Krishna. That introduction next time, if you'll join me for another episode of the Mahabharata. <laughs>